0: Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences video podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews, here in the studio today, joined virtually first by Lauren DeMoss, a healthcare attorney with Maynard Nexon. Lauren, good to be with you. Thanks so much, Heather. It's great to be here today. And we are joined by Dr. Anath Shalav. She is a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the director at the UAB Comprehensive Diabetes Center. Dr. Anath is a renowned scientist and researcher dedicated to developing better diagnostic and therapeutic tools for diabetes. Dr. Shalev, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Could you please start us off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in diabetes research? Sure.
1: So I was trained as an endocrinologist and often felt frustrated that I couldn't offer more to my patients with diabetes, especially those with type 1 diabetes. Obviously, treatments have evolved and gotten better, but there still was nothing other than insulin uh, to offer. And so also during my training, I worked with Dr. Harlan, who brought the uh, eyelids transplantation from the Edmonton Protocol to the U.S., and I was struck by two things. One, the severity of the side effects that were associated with the immunosuppression that was needed for this islet transplantation to take on. Um, And so clearly showing that better approaches were necessary. But then on the other hand, I also noticed how difficult it was to find patients that had lost all their insulin production. So even after 50 years of disease, many still had some remaining C-peptide or insulin, not enough to maintain glucose control, but still enough to measure, and that probably was missed with earlier tests since they were not as sensitive. So that kind of gave me the idea that if we could find ways to create an environment within the body, within the pancreas, and within the islet, where patients could preserve their own beta cells, so those cells that produce insulin could survive and maybe even regenerate some function, that would be a great approach. So kind of with that in mind, we started looking for factors that could be used as targets. And by doing so, identified ticsnip as a protein that was upregulated more than tenfold in human islets that were exposed to toxic levels of glucose. And so, again, to make a long story short, when we, uh, we then looked what ticsnip was doing in a whole body in different mouse models we were able to show the genetic deletion of TICSNP protected mice from different models of diabetes. So with that, we kind of recognized that TICSNP may actually be a very promising target for diabetes, including type 1 diabetes. In addition, we were lucky enough to uh, identify verapamil, which is a commonly used blood pressure medication and calcium channel blocker as a pharmacological tool to inhibit TICSNP and achieve the same beneficial effects as with genetic deletion of TIXNP. So we have got very excited about that. It sounds like there's some significant advancements being made in type one diabetes research and treatments. And you've mentioned kind of um, being able to zero in and, and locate different cells and proteins that can be um, identified and used for treatment. Can you tell us, I guess, some more about promising new treatments for type one diabetes in particular? Absolutely. So just to kind of follow up on that example that I started off with, we were able to move rapamil from the bench to the bedside and, and to conduct the first human trial of repurposing rapamil for the treatment of adult subjects with recent onset type 1 diabetes, which was supported by the JDRF. And we published this back in 2018. So what we found was that subjects that were taking glargine were able to maintain significantly more of their own beta cell function than those that just were receiving placebo, so kind of a, a dummy drug. And so they supposed to spend more time at target range of their blood glucose and had less of these very dangerous low blood glucose episodes called hypoglycemic episodes. So. Um, we were obviously very excited about seeing that. That happened within one year uh, of treatment. Uh, but the question was, were those beneficial effects maintained? And so last year, we published a follow-up study demonstrating that those effects are maintained for at least two years uh, after the diagnosis. So we we're very excited that those patients that are taking and continue to take red are able to maintain their beta cell function. Um, It also was going hand in hand, as you can imagine, when they're producing their own insulin, they also required less insulin injections. So this went hand in hand with a dramatic reduction in insulin requirements. And um, this year, these findings were also independently validated in children with new onset type 1 diabetes in the Clever trial. So we're excited about that, that we now have results in adults from our earlier studies and now in children that uh, are benefiting from uh, this repurposed drug.
0: Dr. Shalev, that is really exciting news. I know both you and Lauren are located physically in Alabama. I'm in South Carolina and here in this state, diabetes is a huge killer and just a, a huge concern. And so the, the uh, news you bring will be welcomed by many. Can you also talk about any advancements in new drug therapies? Sure. So um,
1: since discovery of insulin over 100 years ago, there have been a lot of advances in terms of insulin formulation, uh, long and short-acting insulins, different delivery systems, injections, pens, pumps, etc. However, still, people particularly, again, with type 1 diabetes have been dependent on daily injections or infusion of insulin to survive. And there's really no oral medication or therapy out there that's approved for type 1 diabetes, aside from the RAPMIL that I just mentioned before that is only approved for to use off-label. It's approved for hypertension, not for diabetes at this point. So now while I mentioned that one of the ways uh, of, of mill, how it works, is through down this detrimental protein called snip. It is not specific, mill is not specific um, for tixnip inhibition, and by affecting calcium in the cells, it has a lot of other effects, including on the heart. So it can't be used in all patients, and it's not specific enough, so it's not really kind of razor sharp. So we wanted to find a more specific TIC-SNIP inhibitor, and to do so, we had screened 300,000 small molecules, uh, to make, again, a very long story short, After extensive medicinal chemistry and optimization, we developed an orally available small molecule, Tixnip inhibitor, we call Tix100. Now Tix100 can be given orally, and it is a lot more potent than verapamil, which 10 100 times more potent in vitro, and very effective in preventing and rescuing mice from diabetes. And so now we have spun off a startup company called Tiximat from the university to bring Tix100 to patients and so far have successfully scaled up production and completed most of the safety studies necessary to obtain FDA approval to conduct the first in human trial. And so we're really looking forward to hopefully bring this all the way, kind of through the same pipeline as with mill, bringing it to patients, but having something that's a lot more specific and hopefully uh,
0: targeting uh, our detrimental protein. That's impressive, really impressive. That's, that's
1: exciting too, you know, when you think about, I guess, type one diabetes being kind of a progressive disease and obviously treatments are more effective the earlier they're started. Um, Have there been kind of movements in discovering therapies that delay disease progression and, and how important is that in terms of kind of the different facets of the research you're doing? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And that's a great question. So yes, just over the last year, This anti-CD3 therapy, it's immune therapy uh, called azotiblizumab, was approved to delay progression from stage 2 type 1 diabetes, which is characterized by uh, two or more positive autoantibodies but no symptoms to stage 3 type 1 diabetes, which includes symptoms. So over a year, the study found that the percentage of subjects progressing to stage 3, so with symptoms of type 1 diabetes, was just 45% in those treated with this anti-CD3 injections, as opposed to 72% in the controls who received placebo. And so uh, while previous trials did not meet primary endpoint when used for treatment rather than prevention, this is exciting that this has been now FDA approved and really constitutes the first time that the FDA approved something for prevention of type one diabetes.
0: Well, you are clearly changing lives, Dr. Shalev. I uh, again, I just I'm thinking about the diagnostic and the therapeutic work that you are doing to prevent, to slow down, and to and to treat diabetes. We're grateful that you took your time to join with us today. You are in your current role as the director of the UAB Comprehensive Diabetic Center. Uh, you You seem to be fit with your passion and your excellence for this topic, and we look forward to following and seeing what happens next. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And for those of you who listened to today's podcast, we hope you learned a little bit more about the exciting work underway to combat what is a killer in many of the states in the, in the United States. And on behalf of Lauren and the whole team here, we thank you for joining us and look forward to seeing you next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences video podcast.